Ladies, we have a question for you. What are you doing on Friday 15th of March to Sunday the 17th of March? I'm really hoping you can join Lorraine and I for a very special weekend getaway to rest, rejuvenate and re-energise at the beautiful Samaritz Hotel on the North Cornish coast. Yes, we are kicking off our Postcards from Midlife Events programme for 2024 with this intimate and bespoke midlife retreat. It's our first ever one, which Trish and I have put together with our friends at the luxury Cornish Hotel Samaritz. One of my favourite places to stay when I'm home in Cornwall, thanks to the beautiful wild spa and gorgeous rooms and its minutes from the beach. As well as cold water swimming experiences and friendship walks with us along the beautiful coast, you'll enjoy relaxing classes and sound bathing. You'll also be inspired by our workshops, including breath work to calm the midlife nervous system and mindful cooking with local chef Emily Scott. And you'll even take part in a special podcast recording with best-selling local author Kathy Rensenbrink talking about her book, How to Feel Better. Your stay includes all of this, as well as two nights accommodation, breakfast, lunches, and a two-course evening dinner too. To find out more and book your place, just go to samaritzhotel.co.uk forward slash offers and breaks. We really hope to see you there in March. This is a special episode of Postcards from Midlife brought to you in collaboration with Booper. I've got um, a name drop for you, Lorraine. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Because it's normally you doing the name dropping. It's me dropping all the names left, right and centre. Well... It's not an actual in-person one, but I think you'll you'll quite like this story. So, for my dinner last night, do you know what I had? Your dinner. Yes. Now, we often have very long conversations about our food, <laughs> don't we? We do lunch, yeah. breakfast, dinner. They form a yes. massive chunk of our relationship. I know, it's very important. Let me think, your dinner, would it be a quiche of some sort? No, it wasn't. I had Twiggy's leftover fish cakes for dinner. Twiggy the model? <laughs> Twiggy the models leftover fish cakes. Wow! How did you know? Were they were they going? Don't eat me! Don't eat me! We're for Twiggy. It wasn't like I was in a restaurant and, and kind of scraping them off her plate or anything like that. Oh, no, so because wrestled her to the ground for her fish cake. She's very tiny. She's tinier than you and me. Well, she's very slim and very healthy, so I was quite happy to eat her fish cakes. No, so obviously she was at Neil's studio. So one of Neil's clients was shooting. Twiggy for an upcoming magazine cover mm. and uh, she specifically ordered from the chef these particular fish cakes and there were some leftovers so Neil brought them home for me. So I had very nice salmon. I think there might have been a bit of lemongrass in them, a little bit spicy. Could you um, not have put them on eBay for Twiggy fans for the Twiggy Massive? <laughs> that would have been a good idea. <laughs> Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. 
Welcome, lovely listeners, to another bonus episode of Postcards from Midlife. It's our second this season. We're just raining them down, aren't we, on our listeners? Anyway, today's show is going to be super useful, super helpful, and uh, hopefully reassuring. We are bringing it to you in collaboration with Booper, who help you look after your well-being on your terms. Well, you were very generous. You um, gave all our listeners a lovely chapter of your audiobook Bonus you, episode. Uh, during this season. But we've now teamed up with Booper to start a conversation among women about some of the subjects we often find tricky to talk about amongst ourselves or even with our families. We're going to be putting the most frequently asked questions around women's health to an expert and taking a deep dive into exactly what goes on with our bodies with us women when we hit midlife because we're not talking about it as much as we should. Uh, did you ever talk to your mum about like very specific health issues, Lorraine? No. I mean, it's the maddest, most illogical thing, isn't it? Never asked about <laughs> her periods, never asked about her no. menopause, don't know much about childbirth. You know, it's a really mm. strange that we don't share it. And actually, in a way, we don't really sort of share it enough with our daughters. I mean, I'm always talking to my three daughters and my son about it as well. In fact, I talked to my son at length about periods, which was a joyful mm. conversation for him. <laughs> and I actually got my husband to talk to the girls about periods as well, because I just thought everybody needs to be involved in this conversation. But it is a bit unusual that, isn't it? And we don't really talk to yeah. any older women about it, do we? Well, no. And I think as women throughout our whole lives, we have we have these health issues yeah. from period, you know, hormonal things during periods, changes during childbirth, then we go into menopause. So as well as all the other health stuff that might be going on, this is this sort of underlying and potentially long-term, because if you're having problems with your periods as a teenager, chances are you're likely to be having yeah. issues throughout your lifetime. So it is important that we start talking about it early and informing ourselves and our daughters about it. Yes, as um, a medical expert once said to me about the womb, he said it's a complicated bit of kit. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, we just need to share the information more because our health mm. affects every area of our life, as we know. So in 2019, Booper did a survey which found that almost one million women had left work due to symptoms of the menopause. Now, that is huge. Mm. And in 2021, their research showed that 40% of women were embarrassed to talk about the menopause with their partners. 30% didn't want to talk about it with their employers. And another 30% were reluctant to talk about it, embarrassed uh, to talk about it with their GPs, which is not great, is it? It really isn't. And I suppose the first thing is that we might not know what's going on. Hmm. And then when we do know, so, that, so you're talking you know, about a whole cohort of women here who just don't know how to talk about it, don't know about it. And we say things like down there, don't we? And stuff like that, which is just mad. Yes, it's like we need to be comfortable with the our anatomy yeah. and not be embarrassed about it at all. But we do keep quiet about what we're going through. But it might be a really important medical yeah. issue that needs treatment. But we feel that somehow we just feel we have to endure it because we always have, right? Mm. We just put up with it. Women do that. And Booper found that only one in 20 women speak to their GP about heavy periods each year, which I just think is a huge worry. That doesn't make sense. I mean, heavy periods is a sign of many, many things being not quite right, isn't it? And it, and you, yeah. you know, if a friend um, sort of chatted to you about it, you would probably say to them, go to your GP. But if it's yourself, you sort of think, well, I, I don't want to waste their time. Do I? Yeah, I don't want to well, pop up they with can do about more, more women's, women's yeah. things. And yeah, what can they do about yeah. it? But 
That is changing because the talk of the menopause and midlife and perimenopause is a, it's a big discussion in society now. We're seeing it on telly, we're hearing it on radio, we're reading about it in the papers. People are writing books about it, like my good self. Like you. Yes. Like you. <laughs> yes. And actually, I feel a bit proud of us, Trish, because almost four years ago, we were the first people to yes. talk about the menopause. I just Googled when I first wrote about it, and I wrote about it in the Sunday Times in an editor's letter when I was editing Style. Uh, five years ago. So oh, we brilliant. began it first, yeah. didn't we? We began it first on the podcast and we are very keen to keep uh, voices loud around this. And that is why we're going to be interviewing someone today who's going to bring us all the knowledge we need. It's time to meet the Booper Doctor who will be answering the most frequently asked questions about your female health as you age, Dr Samantha Wilde. Dr Wilde has been a GP for more than two decades, 13 of them in a busy NHS practice, and today she is the clinical lead for women's health at Booper, a subject she specialises in. She has also worked in contraception and sexual health clinics and lectured medical students at Warwick University. Sam suffered with endometriosis in her early 20s and had a hysterectomy during her mid-30s, plunging her into menopause. Her personal experience has driven her passion to shift the stigma that so often surrounds many female health issues. And, like me and Trish, Sam wants to encourage us all to have a more open conversation about some of those taboo subjects, whether that's periods, sexual health or our perimenopause and menopause. Trish and I are on a mission to give women science-based information so they can make well-informed choices about their health, which is exactly what we're going to do today. So let's welcome Dr. Samantha Wilde to Postcards from Midlife. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have a doctor in the house. We're very appreciative. So I think we should start uh, with a general question for our chat today to sort of put it in context um, for our female listeners about women in midlife, so sort of generally over 40. What do you think we should expect to happen to our female health as we hit this stage of life? So it's kind of the two decades between 40 and 60. What are we looking out for and taking notice of? Okay, so there's a lot, Lorraine, as you can imagine. Yes. So um, Go. <laughs> for a start, I'm, I'm always going to start with menopause um, because, uh, as you know, that's my passion. And so most women will enter the menopause. For some, it will happen earlier, I know, but the average age in the UK is 51. And before this, um, women may suffer with symptoms of the perimenopause, which can occur from um, age of 40s, you know, early 40s, really. And, and the perimenopause and the menopause can really affect women in lots of different ways. Some won't have any symptoms at all, but others can experience a variety of physical and psychological symptoms. And, and I know we're going to talk about this a bit more later, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for, for the menopause um, and perimenopause. Next, osteoporosis, uh, thinning of the bones that affects one in three women um, worldwide. And this is more likely to occur after the menopause due to lower estrogen levels, as estrogen is needed to help keep our bones nice and strong. So if someone develops osteoporosis, they're more susceptible to bone fractures, particularly in the wrist, the spine and the hip. And osteoporosis can be prevented. So we always advise weight-bearing exercise, following a healthy diet with calcium-rich foods not smoking, reducing your alcohol intake and taking vitamin D. So taking 10 micrograms of vitamin D, particularly during those winter months when we just don't get any sunlight, which is our other source of vitamin D, 
is really advisable for, for all women. Um, you know, we do say for, for all adults, really, and children as well, but particularly for women at this time of life. Arthritis can also be a concern for some too. And again, exercise can really help prevent that. Moving on to cancers. So there's lots of different cancers that we should be aware of. And remembering really that it's not just gynecological cancers that women suffer from. We do suffer from other cancers too. But saying that breast cancer is the commonest cancer in the UK and it affects one in seven women. It is more common in older women. The majority of cases do occur after the menopause. But again, I think we'll all be aware of, of women that have suffered at a younger age. So it's really important for women to be breast aware. Check your breasts regularly, looking at the size of them, looking out for any lumps, any skin changes and nipple changes, including discharge. And obviously, always see your GP straight away if you've got any concerns at all. And we always advise women to attend for their mammograms when they're called for, which is around the age of 50 on the NHS. Some areas they start slightly earlier, but usually about 50. More cancers. I've got loads more yet. So, um, <laughs> lung cancer and bowel cancer are also very common too over the age of 50. And um, I mean, Dame Deborah James has, has made us more aware of bowel cancer than ever. But do look out for any unusual symptoms such as blood in the poo and any change in bowel habit. And we do do some bowel cancer screening for women once they hit the age of, of 60, although this is generally coming down in most areas towards the age of 50 now, which is good. Lung cancer, um, symptoms to look out for that are coughing up blood, having a chest infection that doesn't seem to go away, maybe being short of breath, having a persistent cough, those sorts of things. And then the other sort of gynecological cancers just to talk about are, are endometrial or, or womb cancer. Endometrial cancer is very common in women, fourth commonest cancer in women, and it will often present with bleeding after the menopause. There may be some bleeding in between periods for women that haven't hit the menopause yet, and then bleeding after intercourse as well is something that should be checked out. And cervical cancer is more common in women in their 30s, um, but that doesn't mean that women in later life can't get it. So again, you know, we do advise that women attend for their regular cervical screening and again, look out for an unusual bleeding patterns or again, bleeding after sex. You've got to look out for things, you know Absolutely. your body basically yeah. after this age, really be aware. Exactly that. So that's what I always say to women is, is we know our bodies the best. So if something is just doesn't feel right, if it's niggling, go and get it checked out. And then if you still don't feel happy after you've been checked out and something's still niggling, go and get it checked out again. We want people to feel comfortable. And, you know, if, if something doesn't feel right, keep persisting. And in, in your sort of whistle-stop tour of the body and what we should be looking out for, um, what about heart health? Thank you, Trish. I was just going to come on to that. Ah, so, huge yeah, up. <laughs> so um, again, you know, I think we, we always think about breast cancer in women and, and worry about breast cancer being a big killer. But actually, heart disease is, is just as important as well. And so women are twice as likely to die of, of coronary heart disease, of a heart attack than breast cancer in the UK. And yet, in a way, we, we see it as, a, as a, a man's problem and not a woman's problem. So signs to look out for are, are, you know, chest pain that can occur on, on exertion um, that might go up into the neck or down the arm. Back in the past, it was a thought that women suffered differently if they had heart disease. But actually, more recent studies have shown no women have the same sort of symptoms. I think they just tend to be ignored, not just by women, but sometimes by healthcare professionals as well. Diabetes as well is also very common. So um, if somebody is feeling tired, if they're losing weight unintentionally, um, if they're feeling particularly thirsty, 
going for a wee quite often, blurred vision, they can all be symptoms of diabetes. So really important to get checked out for that too. Quite a list. That's so helpful. It's quite <laughs> it's really a list, helpful, isn't it? Yeah. But I think it's really helpful having it in a list like that because you hear it sort of floating around and in the media. But if you can focus on those things for yourself and check in with yourself like every month or whatever with all of these things, that's super helpful. But what is stopping women going to the doctor or talking about this? Because we are reluctant, aren't we? Yeah, I think historically there's been a tendency for women to not talk about it because of the taboo. And we've tended to just get on with things, putting everyone else's needs before our own. I think sometimes there's been an element of embarrassment with it. I know that a lot of women worry about wasting a doctor's time as well. And maybe again with with COVID and and feeling now that resources are, are even more stretched than ever before. Again, you know, a, a tendency to, you know, just think I'll get on with it, let everybody else go first. Um, I think with women's health as well, we're not always aware of what is normal and what isn't. We haven't talked about things enough in the past, particularly things like the menopause and menstruation, because there's been such a lot of negative attitude around it. It's been the butt of many jokes over the years, hasn't it? That we sometimes don't want to come forward and and actually discuss our concerns. Um, And there's still a lot of cultural issues as well with, with making it such a taboo. Do you know any doctors who would actually think this woman is wasting my time? Not at all. No, no doctors at all. Nobody would ever think that. No, no. So you've got to go, haven't you? Now, to get specific on women's health, uh, something we talk a lot about on our private Facebook group of this podcast is the changing nature of our periods and our cycle. So, well, we should talk a lot more about it, as you've just said. So what is going on with our wounds, with our hormones, with our cycle and our periods as we get older? Because, I mean, both Trish and I have talked about this before. We had kind of horrific periods suddenly out of the blue. All of that is happening. And again, quite reluctant to go to the doctor about it. But what is going on and what are we looking out for? And how does it affect things like contraception? Um, and our diet, all of that. One of the first signs of the perimenopause, which, as I said, for most women is going to be in their 40s, is the change in the normal pattern of the periods due to the sort of the changing in the hormone levels as the estrogen levels start to fluctuate and then drop. Um, And our progesterone levels change too. So it's the balance of the hormones that determines what our periods are like. So women may start having either unusually light or heavy periods, and they could come more or less frequently you know, for some, they won't happen for months at a time. And then other period symptoms because of those hormones can also become more intense, things like the cramps and the mood swings. But if someone's suffering with very painful periods, though, or very, very heavy, for example, needing to change a pad or a tampon every two hours, or if you're bleeding for more than seven days, then we shouldn't just attribute this to the changing hormones and the perimenopause. We must check you know, somebody out to make sure that there isn't anything else going on. They need to have some further investigations, particularly if there's if the symptoms such as feeling full more easily or nausea or indigestion, bloating, that can suggest that there's something more sinister going on. So as we were saying before, again, if you just feel that your body isn't right, it's affecting your day-to-day functions, then get checked out. With regards to sort of where we're at at that point and what we should do, when a woman's completed her family, then obviously that's going to be a time when she may consider other treatment for conditions such as endometriosis, which can include taking medications to induce an artificial menopause or, or having a hysterectomy. And this may also be a time when we start to think about different forms of contraception as well. So 
you know, we may be changing our cycle by doing different things at this time. So we need to carry on having contraception, as I'm, I'm sure you've discussed before, for two years after our last period, if you're under the age of 50, and one year after your last period, if you're over the age of 50. But doctors tend to stop women taking the combined pill at the age of 50 um, because there's a lot of safer options out there. So we tend to change women over to progesterone-only contraception at this time. And most of these methods will stop a woman having periods completely. The intrauterine system, uh, which is commonly known as the Marina Coil, which is just one of the brands of that, but it's a coil with progesterone in, is a fantastic option for a lot of women because it has a number of, of functions. So it provides contraception, but it also stops a woman's period. So it's used for the management of heavy bleeding but it can also be used as part of HRT. So absolutely fantastic to have all those different benefits for a woman. And then we would assume that by the age of 55, a woman no longer needs contraception. She's not likely to get pregnant anymore. But we would advise, you know, speaking to your GP at that point um, and before then about what method is going to be best for you. Is what you go through as a teenager any reflection of your period's is there any link between the kind of periods you had as a teenager to the periods in your in, in midlife? It would depend, really, if your periods that you were having as a teenager were due to a particular sort of illness. If you know, I, I've talked quite openly in the past about how I was an endometriosis sufferer. So I had very bad periods for an early age that just continued through. And it's likely that they would have continued right until my perimenopause menopause if I hadn't have had a hysterectomy. So if you have got an underlying condition like that, Although there's a myth out there that pregnancy is going to solve it, it often doesn't. So you're going to carry on suffering. But if you've had sort of difficult periods because your hormones have been settling themselves when you've started your periods, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen again later on. We do know that there's a tendency to have an earlier menopause if, if your mother has had an earlier menopause. So that may be something to look out for. So is endometriosis something... It's not something that just happens to you. Is it something you're likely to have had since a teenager? Can it happen at any time? And also fibroids. I don't know whether it's good. The clarifying between the two would be really helpful. Okay, so endometriosis can happen um, really at any age, but we, we used to think it happened really to women in their 20s and 30s, but it is likely that it had been happening earlier than that. It's just that girls had been given contraception to manage it or again hadn't spoken up about it so we didn't know that what age they'd first started with it and it's when the the endometrial tissue that so the tissue that's usually found lining the womb grows elsewhere within the body so it can grow on the outside of the womb it can grow on the fallopian tubes on the ovaries it can also for some people grow in their bowel and their bladder and their lungs as well and so each month this will build up and and it, um, it'll shed whereas normally the bleeding will come out from the uterus. In this case, the blood's got nowhere to go. So as these cells break down, they just cause local scarring and inflammation. So that's why women tend to suffer with a lot of pain and they tend to have these heavier periods too. Um, and if you've got it elsewhere in your body, you can do things, you can cough up blood or you might see blood oh in your urine gosh. or in your stools. So yes. um, that's what's happening each month with that. And, and it can obviously get very debilitating because this pain from the scar tissue tends to just keep building up and it will then start to happen throughout the cycle. Women get very run down with it. Their sleep can be disturbed at night and obviously it's going to affect their mental health as well. And there's worries and, and concerns about their fertility maybe being affected too. And sorry, back to fibroids, because we've spoken to actually a lot of women on this show who have 
gone through something in midlife, they've had, you know, big swollen stomachs, feeling and and they've discovered that they've have these fibroids. Can you explain what's happening there when we're likely to get them and what we should do about them if we think we have? So fibroids are non-malignant growth that can occur on, on the uterus. Um, so sometimes they can occur outside the uterus, sometimes they'll occur within the uterine wall itself, and sometimes they'll occur inside the uterus, so inside the womb. And because they are there, they tend to cause heavier bleeding throughout the month. Again, they can cause pain and discomfort depending on the size of them. Um, And they are more common as you get older and they're more common in certain ethnic groups as well. Um, And so, again, if if you're suffering with heavier periods, if you are feeling very bloated and some of them can be absolutely huge, then see the doctor and get checked out. You'll um, normally have um, an internal examination from the doctor, but what they'll do is they'll refer you for an ultrasound scan to have a look in more detail. And there's different ways of managing it. If they're quite small, we might just use, um, well, sometimes you don't need to do anything at all, or we might just use medication. We might use a marina coil again to stop the bleeding. Um, But some of them will need to have um, operations, maybe just to remove the fibroid itself. Or again, if someone has completed their family, they might need to have a hysterectomy to have the whole lot removed. It's a lot to think about. And as someone who's had a hysterectomy yourself and had endometriosis, and and obviously you were very young at the time, weren't you? You were in your your mid-30s. What was that process like for you? It was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was the last resort, as as it should be, because it is a major operation. Um, so we shouldn't diminish that. But um, I tried a variety of hormonal treatments over the years for my endometriosis. I luckily been able to have a family quite easily, and I'd completed my family. And so it was the right time for me, really, to get it done. But looking back, I don't think I was counselled enough, really, about what that meant in terms of being put straight into the menopause and. I was given an older type of HRT, which um, isn't uncommon to use after um, a surgical hysterectomy. But we don't tend to use so much these days as as GPs because there are nicer HRTs out there now, which which tend to give less side effects and a lot safer. And so it took me quite a few years to find the right treatment for, for me. Again, which isn't unusual for women, but I think I just wasn't aware what that process would be like. I probably suffered for longer than I should have done because I wasn't so educated then in, in the menopause and HRT. But, you know, that's what really inspired me to, to do what I do now and, and talk about it as much as I can. It's very hard, isn't it? We've had um, some celebrities on the show who've been had uh, hysterectomies. And again, the same story, not been told what was going to happen. So that's what you've got to get, isn't it? A plan for after something as big as a hysterectomy. So if we talk about perimenopause, which we have talked about on the show many times, but it's worth just Telling women, again, because I still get (laughs) asked about it, there are many, many symptoms, over 40 symptoms of the perimenopause, aren't they? And they're not just physical, are they? They are mental symptoms as well. We have a lot of mood uh, changes around this time. What's going on with women who get perimenopause symptoms? As I'm sure you know, but but just to sort of clarify, so a woman um, has reached the menopause after she hasn't had a period for a year, but before this time, she is likely to experience perimenopause symptoms, which are going to be, you know, more or less the same as when she becomes menopausal as well. And not everyone does suffer with symptoms. About 25% of women won't suffer with any at all. But obviously, that means that 75% of women do. And about a third will describe them as severe. And as you said, you know, there's at least 34 different symptoms of the menopause. So every woman's experience is going to be different because everyone experiences different ones. You know, we say the average length of the menopause is four years. 
for many, it can be a decade or more. So, you know, this, this isn't something that, that we're just talking about, you know, try and put up with it for a few months or a year or two. For some, it can be a long time. And just really to sort of explain why, estrogen protects a number of different systems in the body. So it, it helps with our brain, our skin, our bones, our heart, our urinary functions and the genital areas. So when the estrogen levels start to drop, all these different parts of the body can therefore be affected. Everyone always thinks about hot flushes and night sweats. And, you know, rightly so, it will affect about 75% of women, but they don't necessarily realize that this may come associated with dizziness and palpitations and, and lightheadedness too. And they can occur several times daily and at night and be aggravated by um, some foods, particularly spicy foods and alcohol as well. And if you're waking up at night and if you're getting night sweats, then obviously you're going to feel very fatigued. And that will impact your emotional and psychological symptoms that really do affect women the most whilst they're in the menopause. That's from my experience as a GP. That's what women tell me bothers them the most. And, and we've also been collecting data from our bupermenopause plan, which is telling us that too. And yet women often um, underreport these symptoms. And so we tend to underestimate them. So there can be increased anxiety, mood swings, irritability, lack of confidence and, and difficulty with memory and concentration, which we term as brain fog. And very often I'll see women as well that tell me that little things in the past that they know wouldn't have bothered them suddenly feel like huge hurdles to overcome. So this can be things such as traveling, driving on the motorway is, is a very common new fear, using the underground as well or flying. Um, and for some, even just going out and socializing. So I think for a lot of women during COVID times, when they were forced to stay at home, this made this a lot worse. And so it's made it even harder for them to get back to sort of normal demands of life. Women also talk about having an incredibly short fuse. Um, I always talk about the becoming rage. the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you suddenly get that huge rage inside and you feel so angry at people. And then because Everything. we are as we are, we then feel extremely guilty afterwards and we blame ourselves and we really dwell on what's happened as well. Can I just stop you, Sam? If you if you take those things to a doctor that, you know, those I feel ashamed, I'm so cross about everything. How can we talk about that to GPs so they are more understanding of the emotional side? Because that's the bit I think that women feel really frightened of taking to the GP, the emotional side of it. Because you're saying there's nothing physically wrong with me. I just feel like there's no point in anything anymore <laughs> or I'm very cross. I think you've, you've just got to be honest about it. Talk about how you are feeling. I think it makes a massive difference these days to go armed with as much information as possible to your doctor. So if you can try and keep a, um, a diary, a symptom checker of how you've been feeling, and so you can sort of equate it to your cycle and say, this has been happening at this point, and say, I think I might be going through the, the perimenopause or the herbal menopause when you get there, that can really help the doctor by, by giving them that information in the first place. Taking somebody with you, if you feel that you need to have that bit of extra support there. I always say as well, it, it can help in the first place to actually speak to the receptionist about which doctor might be the best doctor to speak to, which is the doctor that specializes in the perimenopause and the menopause. And then you might feel then that hopefully they're going to you know, listen to you straight away and, and get straight to the point, as it were, with, without feeling that you've really got to explain exactly what's going on. But don't ever feel you know, embarrassed about these things. This is what we're there for. Nothing is ever silly. We are there to help. 
And if you don't feel that you've been listened to, if you don't feel that the doctor has understood exactly what you think is going on, if, if you don't feel that they have identified correctly that you are you know, perimenopausal or, or menopausal, you can always ask for a second opinion. You can always ask to see another doctor. For those that are fortunate enough, you know, there, there are private options out there as well. You know, we have our bupermenopause plan um, and we have found with that that a lot of, of, of our customers have actually seen their own NHS GP beforehand, but haven't felt that things have been mm. quite right. And they've wanted to have more time to discuss things in detail. So they've, they've sought further help afterwards. It's educating ourselves as much as possible and then having that, that confidence to talk about it. We've got to advocate for ourselves, haven't we? We're, we're the only person that is going to get it to be how we want it to be. So we've got to try and get that courage from somewhere to get the right help for ourselves. And talking of help, the NICE guidelines state that HRT should be the first resource for perimenopause diagnosis and the symptoms. And when we first started doing this podcast, we were just hearing from women that they were being prescribed antidepressants all the time ahead of HRT or even being given the option for HRT. So what should you be asking for? And if your GP suggests antidepressants instead of HRT, what conversation should you be having around that? When we've talked about those symptoms, you can understand why they can be mistaken for depression. And that's not to say that perimenopausal or menopausal women can't suffer with depression at the same time as well. But we do know that antidepressants just won't help for the cause of these symptoms if they're due to those low and fluctuating hormone levels. So as you said, the menopause guidelines are really clear that antidepressants should not be used first line as there's no evidence that they're going to work. And recently, we've also had the healthcare safety investigation branch that have flagged this as a concern too, because many women are still being given antidepressants first line. So they made recommendations for the mental health services to always consider the menopause in in these situations. Women can usually, you know, they can feel the difference. So they can tell that they're not depressed, particularly if they have experienced it in the past and and they feel that it's different this time, or, or they tell me that they don't have anything to feel depressed about. So it's irrational to them. They can tell that there's something else going on. So there is a role for antidepressants. We do use them for some women that can't take HRT. So for women with breast cancer, for example, we may give them antidepressants instead of HRT because there is some evidence it can reduce hot flushes and night sweats. But for for women that are experiencing these mood symptoms, Otherwise, and they can have HRT, they absolutely should have that first. Just to be absolutely clear for our listeners, HRT, hormone replacement therapy, is the the hormones we're losing fluctuating replaced with body identical, so plant-based HRT. It's the three hormones, isn't it? Absolutely. So we need estrogen to replace those lower levels of estrogen to hopefully alleviate all those symptoms that we've talked about. The progesterone is used for women that still have a uterus. So if you have had a hysterectomy, you don't need progesterone because what the progesterone does is it protects the lining of the uterus from being overstimulated by the estrogen that we're giving. If we give too much estrogen and we stimulate the lining of the womb too much, we may get some irregular bleeding. We may get something called endometrial hyperplasia. And in rare circumstances, that can lead to endometrial cancer. So obviously, we don't want that to occur. So that's why women that have a womb must absolutely take estrogen and progesterone together. We also may use testosterone for some women too. Do you want to explain testosterone? Because at the moment, uh, we're getting asked about it quite a lot on the Facebook page. And I know there's a lot of discussion in the papers and things. So 
you you can prescribe it as a GP, can't you? But uh, that would be privately as Androfem. So what, what would be the benefits of testosterone? Yeah, so some GPs are allowed to prescribe um, testosterone. It varies from area to area and sometimes will be based on, on how much experience that GP has and, and whether it is on their drug formulary. Um, but you're absolutely right. Androfem is always a private prescription. But there are other types of testosterone that, that are used in this country unlicensed because they're made for men, but we can use them for women. We do prescribe a lot of testosterone in our clinics as well. So it's a really important female hormone that a lot of women really benefit from replacing, particularly those who have had a premature or a surgical menopause as testosterone is made in the ovaries as well as the adrenal glands. In other women, though, levels of testosterone will just decrease gradually as you get older anyway. And testosterone contributes to our libido, our sexual arousal and orgasm, but it also maintains normal metabolic function, our muscle and bone strength, our urogenital health, our mood and our cognitive function. So um, you can appreciate why treatment is beneficial, not just to help with our sexual dysfunction, which is why NICE say that we can prescribe it, but it can also help women just with their sort of general energy levels as well and their concentration too. Some will help, will find that it really helps with their brain fog. So yes, yeah, we said, it's, it's not licensed for women in the UK, but Androfem that we tend to prescribe privately is licensed for women in Western Australia. It's, it's specially created for women to use. And we must always use it alongside the HRT of estrogen and progesterone as well, if a woman needs progesterone. Because otherwise, if somebody hasn't got enough estrogen on board, then the testosterone will just be converted by the body to estrogen. So you won't get those benefits from the testosterone. And it comes in the form of cream or gel or, or even an implant, which is done by some specialists. A bit more of a commitment because we tend to do regular blood tests that you don't normally need to have on HRT just to ensure that we aren't over-treating women with it. There are potential side effects of increased hair growth at the areas where you apply it, um, but sort of generalized hair growth all over as well. Some women may actually get thinning of the hair too and, and male pattern hair loss. You can get acne and greasy skin. And very rarely you can get um, a deepening of the voice or an enlargement of the clitoris. So very careful that we don't overtreat women with it. And then when you go to your GP, quite often they will um, suggest doing a blood test. And we know we've talked about you, it's, you can't really measure the hormones, can you? Because they're fluctuating, but they might be checking for other things such as thyroid function, which again is something we hear a lot of women in midlife discovering they have an underactive thyroid, for example. You're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm often asked if there is a blood test for the menopause, but we don't do it because of those hormone levels fluctuating hour by hour, day by day. So there's such a wide range of what is normal that your bloods could have altered quite significantly within a normal level, but you're still feeling symptoms. So the NICE guidance states very clearly that under the age of 45, you know, is the only time that we should be considering blood tests over the age of 45, we don't do them at all. And the diagnosis should be based on symptoms alone. But under the age of 45, if your periods have stopped, a doctor might consider checking what we call your FSH level, your follicle stimulating hormone, just to help them decide with the diagnosis. Um, and under the age of 40, we'd definitely be wanting to do this to confirm premature menopause. But we may also be um, doing blood tests such as thyroid, um, because we do know that a lot of symptoms of thyroid disease can overlap um, with symptoms of the menopause. We might be doing um, tests for anemia if somebody's feeling particularly tired. 
you know, and, and a wide range of other conditions, we have to be very careful not to attribute everything to the perimenopause and the menopause always. I think particularly sort of as, as the age is coming down under the age of 45 and definitely under the age of 40. And in terms of your lifestyle then, I know you like to do your exercise, you, you like do a indeed. bit of fitness. Yeah. So there are things that you can do or should be thinking about doing as you go into your 40s, aren't they, that are good for your health? Because, you know, both Trisha and I often talk on the podcast about how we've slowed down a little bit. We've tried not to put ourselves under stress, which causes inflammation. We've done changed our exercise. What, what sort of things would you advise as a GP to be thinking about as they head into their 40s in this stage of life? So we always start by talking about lifestyle measures. Um, so even before we get to the conversation around HRT, I cannot stress enough how important these are. And, and even though sometimes they seem a bit obvious, and I know people hear again and again about how important they are, so they tend to negate them a little bit. They do make such a huge difference, particularly at this age. I would always say first, you know, try and keep as cool and calm as you can. So dress in layers of breathable fabric that you can take off as you need, have a fan close by, have some cool water, particularly at night as well. Make sure that your room is nice and cool so that you're not overheating. Have layers of sheets on the bed rather than a thick duvet. Keep your room temperature low. So that was going to help you sleep better at night. Also try and get into a good sleep pattern too. So sleep hygiene is really important. You know, making sure that you're going to bed about the same time every night, waking up at the same time every morning, even at weekends as well. That makes a massive difference winding down properly before you go to sleep as well. Reduce stress, as you've said, so that can include mindfulness exercises, breathing exercises, yoga. Everybody's different in how they de-stress, so it's finding what's right for you. Eating well is really, really important. So it's really important for us to try and make our heart as healthy as we can because our risk of heart disease increases after the menopause. So we would say follow a Mediterranean diet with a high intake of plant foods and oily fish. So eat more whole foods and processed foods and also include something to make sure that your bones are nice and strong. So those calcium rich foods, we need to have two or three portions in our daily diet. Things such as green leafy vegetables, uh, salmon and nuts, as, as well as dairy products. And women should aim for about 700 milligrams a day of calcium. Cut down caffeine. A lot of women find that they become more sensitive to caffeine. And so cutting back can help, again, reduce some of those sort of stress and anxiety levels that some people can feel as they have more caffeine. It can improve our sleep quality. It can reduce hot flushes. Um, and it also cuts back on some stress on the bladder as well, because usually caffeine is a diuretic. So we, we tend to wee more. So um, and a lot of women will start to suffer with their bladder a bit more as they get older. And then keeping active. So there's so many benefits to exercising not just for the mindfulness aspects, um, but we know that it also helps reduce some of the menopausal symptoms such as hot flushes and night sweats too. So we need to get some weight-bearing exercise to keep our bones strong, combat some of that strength that we start to lose. And it also, exercise will help us maintain our strength and our balance. So we'll reduce that risk of falls that can happen as we get older. And regular aerobic exercise helps keep our cholesterol down keeps our blood pressure down so it reduces our risk of heart disease. And if you combine exercise obviously with a healthy diet, it can help you maintain you know, a healthy weight, which helps reduce our risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and a lot of cancers as well. So breast cancer in particular is, is associated with being overweight. Reduce your alcohol intake. This can affect our sleep quality. It can affect our mood as it is a depressant. 
it will reduce our risk of hot flushes with that. Again, it will reduce your risk of breast cancer. Obviously, stop smoking. Wouldn't advise anybody ever smoked anyway. And things like cognitive behavioural therapy can be very helpful for some as well. There's some quite a lot of good science around CBT, isn't there, helping? An awful lot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. again, not just to help with, with our mood and the emotional symptoms, but it does also help with the physical symptoms of the menopause because they're so interlinked. So I always advise women that it's worth exploring. I mean, sometimes there is a bit of resistance to that. But actually, when I tell them that they're going to learn some useful and practical strategies that they can probably use for the whole family then, and, and particularly for their children, again, because of the way that women are wired, if we feel that we're then going to help others, we're more likely to help ourselves. And what do you mean by CBT? Not a lot of GPs are trained in uh, it themselves. No, but you'd they need might know to see an expert. Specialist. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy in a nutshell. And then again, I'm, I'm not an expert, <laughs> but it challenges the way that we think about things. So to change negative thoughts into positive thoughts. So so it, it's just challenging some. And, and, you know, a lot of women think negatively about themselves, yeah. um, particularly as we're going through the menopause with the imposter syndrome as well. So it's challenging those thoughts to turn it around. So much of what, what we've just talked through and almost everything we've talked through reminds me of the issues that our teenage daughters go through as well. Absolutely. Again, and it's the changing hormones at those times, Oh, my times, goodness. Isn't it? It's literally all the kind of period problems, changing thought patterns, their, you know, their sleep patterns, their exercise. It's the same advice almost, isn't it, for our teenage daughters, is that they're not going to listen to us no. if we try and tell them. <laughs> but I think a lot of, um, a lot of mothers um, that listen to this podcast – We'll have teenage daughters. We both have teenage daughters who are probably having terrible period problems, who are being put on contraception or need to want to go on contraception because they're becoming sexually active. And that's another, you know, not only are we trying to look after ourselves and our sort of health, we're trying to really look out for our daughters as well. What do you advise somebody whose daughter is having problems with periods and, and is, is struggling? What should they be doing? I think, again, um, you know, as I said, it, it's all about opening up the conversation, breaking down the taboos and, and increasing awareness of, of what is normal and, and what isn't. I like to simplify things. So put very simply, if somebody isn't able to carry out their activities of daily living, so their normal daily function because their periods are affecting them, then that is not normal. And so they should seek advice. The more that we can talk about it, share our experiences, because that will then encourage others to do so and, and get our daughters opening up about it. They'll feel less alone about it and they'll feel more comfortable to ask for support themselves. So, you know, hopefully we can change the culture for the future. You know, and, and I think things are gradually changing. It's, it's excellent now that, you know, it is included on the school curriculum. They are starting to talk about menstrual health and menopause, and they are being far more open about these things. You know, and I think also it could be a good opportunity to, to talk to your, your own mum if, if you're lucky enough to still have her around about her experiences because she's probably never had the opportunity to discuss it before. She, she may, may not have felt comfortable to, but again, if, if we're open about it, she might like to talk about it. And it's important for us to know as well because, again, it, it you know, might help us understand what we're going through. And, and you know, if, if she had an early menopause, we might be more likely to have one. And get those conversations open because it's important for us to be aware, again, if there's been any cases of cancer in the family or heart disease under the age of 60, so which may have a genetic element to them so that we can assess our own risks and, and, and know what we should be doing. 
So in your work um, at Bupa then, Sam, you have, uh, Bupa does something called the period plan and the menopause plan. Trish and I love the idea of a plan. Tr- Trish mm. particularly, she loves a plan. There's a plan for everything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so what would happen in a period plan or a menopause plan? How, how does that something like that work? Because uh, it sounds intriguing. At Bupa, we have our, our menopause plan product and our period plan product. So um, starting with the menopause plan product. So this is specifically designed to support women um, through the lifestyle stage of the perimenopause, the menopause and the postmenopause. And what we aim to do is to encompass the identified customer's needs um, of time with an empathetic GP who really understands their symptoms and concerns with easily accessible longer appointments and provision of reliable information. So we follow the NICE guidance and we provide NICE approved treatment. And the period plan, is that something you might take your daughter to, for example? So at the moment, it is age four, 18 and over, but very shortly we will um, be bringing the age range down because we, we recognise there's a need there for, for teenage girls as well. What about contraception? Would that come into Because obviously a lot of the, the, the remedies or the managing periods is through contraception. Exactly, yes, isn't you're exactly it? right, Trish. So yes, we, we do in some of our clinics, we are able to fit um, contraceptive coils. Uh, we can do implants, we can give contraceptive injections, and obviously we can prescribe tablets and, and uh patches if people have patches and, and other things as well. Great. That's super helpful. You've been very helpful today uh sam it's been so nice to talk to someone who's got all you know who's just willing to share all the information because we meet so many women who encounter medical professionals who are very reluctant to listen to to particularly the mental health aspect of this which we know is really uh upsetting for many women um you have tackled many of the subjects we've got everybody talking just to let our listeners know as well that we have tackled some of these subjects in depth before on the show so dip back into our archive of postcards from midlife if you are worried about any of the things that we have talked about in this show today then you must talk to your gp for sure and to thank you for coming we've managed to get through the whole show sam without mentioning your love of cats which i feel <laughs> i knew that was going to come up <laughs> i feel i'm keeping away you you're you are you i think like you described <laughs> yourself as a cat lady didn't you crazy yes. cat lady crazy yeah. cat lady yeah. what have you got then <laughs> tell us about those felines I currently have three cats. I've, I've always had some, um, but I currently have three. So I had two new kittens last year. My, my daughter went oh, to university. Right. So I replaced her with two kittens. Um, <laughs> I have a son that we're going to university in another year. So we'll see. Watch this space. See if I get any more. I'm not okay. sure my husband. What are their me. names? Um, so I have the children name them. Minnie and Marley, who are both kittens who are now um, just over one. And then I have an old girl who's 14, who's been very oh. tolerant with them. Um, she's called Tilly. So, um, yes, I have oh. three. They're currently locked up in the kitchen or they would be joining me. They, they love to come on, uh, there, on my <laughs> meetings with me. Come and sit on your laptop. They do. All they the love time. a bit of that, yeah. don't they? What's Margot doing this morning, Trish? Well, I think she's having a snooze upstairs up against a wall. She likes to kind of wedge herself in between the curtain and a chest of drawers, sort of <laughs> facing a wall. <laughs> but when she hears Lorraine's voice, Sam, she often comes running down. It's always the, the same, isn't it? They, they know so who funny. doesn't really like them or who's allergic to them. Yeah, yes. make a feline. She got into my handbag last time. Literally, <laughs> physically got into my bag. As if to say, I was like, what's she doing in there? Because if it's anything unmentionable, I should be putting her in the garden. Oh. Anyway, thank yes. you very much for coming on Sam that was helpful thank you for having me thank you it's been lovely thank you 
If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Well, that was a great conversation with Dr. Sam, our new friend, Dr. Sam. She was so helpful. And it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, we've been talking to so many experts. We've talked about this a lot over the past few years. But every time I feel I learn something new or I, I come at it quite differently. I mean, there was a couple of things Sam said that made me think, oh, one of them was like this idea that as women, let, we let everyone else go first, don't we? I haven't heard it put like that before, but I thought that was that was really, really good. Um, and I loved the checklist, the head-to-toe checklist that she gave us at the beginning. So that's just sort of stuff that needs to be on our radar. And then the other thing, and I think we need to look at this more, Lorraine, is the CBT yeah. element of things, isn't it? So yes. I think we might be looking at that more in Series 10. Ugh. It's come up a couple of times. More people are talking about it. And I think what was really refreshing to hear from Sam is this sense that our mental health is so intrinsically tied to our physical health. Mm. And actually, when we're in a good place, which things like CBT can help us with, we are much healthier and we are much more yeah. able to deal with all the stuff. It's just that idea also that going into your 40s, you do not want to be ambushed by all these things. I mean, yes. I know that might have sounded that interview, a lot of symptoms, a lot of things to think about. But if you know it's coming and you have a plan for it <laughs> yes. and you're in a good yes. mental space and you are doing the normal day-to-day things that can make you healthier, then you're just going to deal with all of this um, in a much better way. And you're going to be able to deal with all the women around you in a better way. And you're going to be able to share information in a better way. She was she clarified a lot of things. Yes, yes. Helpful. So I hope that helps anybody who is going to see a GP um, to get some help. They should, uh, there should be lots of advice there. And if you wanted to follow up um, with Bupa, you can go to their website, which is bupa.co.uk. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, time to say goodbye. Goodbye.